Hi, James. Ben, how are you? Very comfortable. I'm very comfortable with the hi, James. I feel I feel it's really in my wheelhouse. I want to keep doing it. We are back to our regular routine. It was crazy how much that splitting, uh, switching things up just threw... It, it made me remember what it was like right back at the beginning. It felt like going back to being uh, podcast number 01 or 02 all over again. Uh, instead, well, it is podcast one. I believe it's podcast one one one. Correct. That is that is true. Um, and that's a, I, that's a lot of podcasts. It. I know it's crazy how it adds up when you do it every week. Oh, our, our, our <laughs> thanks. <laughs> I forgot how to read an ad. Uh, on that note, uh, our thanks to Mailchimp for sponsoring Exponent, as they do every week. Speaking of every week, that's that's the segue I was I was there trying to make. Mailchimp can help you automate your marketing to get back to work. With Mailchimp, you get enterprise level automation without any of the headaches. For example, you can send an onboarding series of emails to introduce new subscribers to your business or organization. You can automatically follow up with customers after a purchase and recommend other products with the love. Surprise your best customers with a coupon triggered by their shopping behavior. Remind customers of products they left in their cart and encourage them to complete their transaction. There's all sorts of things you can do with MailChimp to automate your marketing and get back to work. And our thanks to MailChimp for sponsoring Exponent. You you already know what I'm going to say because you made me very acutely aware of it last week. Um, thank, thanks, guys. <laughs> <laughs> See, now we're totally screwed up. We can't even go back to the, to the normal way. Yeah, something like that. So in celebration of getting back to normal, I thought we would talk about a, uh, a company that I thought we'd talk about Facebook. Yes, that is definitely getting back to normal. It's a testament. I mean, we talk about – it's interesting to think about the companies we talk about. Why do we talk about Facebook? I, I wrote an article like, – <laughs> I wrote an article in 2015, which I'm sure we podcasted about, uh, called The Facebook Epoch. And my point – the reason I wrote that article is I was – it blew my mind that it was 2015 at this point, And there were still people that, in my estimation, particularly in tech, particularly in the Valley, that failed to appreciate mm. how utterly dominant Facebook was. Like it's it's amazing the sort of blind spot that so many people in technology have had about Facebook for many many years and and all this stuff right now people are like oh you're critical of Facebook suddenly like no it's the exact same article I was writing before the implication of being dominant is that you also have to deal with and address the effects of dominance. It's not just dominance. I mean, there are a number of technology companies that are dominant, but it's also the, the dominance in a new field that's emerging that's going to have possibly the greatest impact on society of all the companies that we're talking about. Right. And the, the, the reason why Facebook is so important and why we absolutely will talk about it more, even, even though we talk about it all the time, is I think your point about it being so important is key. Is Facebook going to be the most profitable company of all time? Not not necessarily. I mean, I think it remains a phenomenal business and a phenomenal business opportunity going forward. But what does Facebook traffic in? What is Facebook's primary product? It's information and yeah. it's guiding attention. Like Facebook controls the attention of 2 billion people and they direct the flow of information that impacts all kinds of things. That's why it's an amazing advertising platform for those exact reasons, but that means it also has impacts all over the place and it's almost irresponsible if you want to have a podcast about tech and society. That's basically the description of Facebook. So I enjoyed reading about your article this week, and it was in the context of their F8 um, conference, which they put on every year, which is last year was laying out the vision. But I think if I were to characterize it, this year felt a little bit different. 
Yeah, the so this article, what I was trying to accomplish here is that there's a lot of stuff like the idea – when I put on my business analyst hat – Facebook is amazing, right? And it's why I've written about them repeatedly over the years and gotten, you know, been able to write lots of articles because to the extent people I think still don't appreciate what an incredible business this company is. And it's not just where they are in the sort of ecosystem, it's that it's a really well-run company, right? They know what they're doing. They have effective management. One of the most greatest things about Mark Zuckerberg as an executive is he doesn't think he knows everything. Mm. He is clearly open to feedback and bringing in very smart people that that do things that he doesn't know how to do and learning and iterating. And it's really impressive. Like if, if I if this was a podcast just about tech and just about tech and business, we could honestly do nothing but praise him. Yeah, I, I would totally concur. And it's crazy when you think back to the start, uh back to the start of these social networks. And then Twitter was kind of in the running at the same time. And just the difference between those two horses in, in this race of social networks and the difference being that one of these companies has been managed and managed incredibly well. Um, and you think about the jump from the desktop to the mobile and how you he's it's not that they haven't made mistakes. It's their ability to recognize them and correct them. And dr- like when they see one of them to drop everything and just focus on getting it right, it's remarkable. I wouldn't go quite that far. I mean, I just praise Zuckerberg a lot, but there's this, there's this famous quote from Warren Buffett, which is when a management with a reputation for brilliance tackles a business with a reputation for bad economics, <laughs> it is the reputation of the business that remains intact. And it's not that Twitter – I think Twitter could have been a very fine business. So I would kind of flip this around. It's not, But this idea that what's the power of management versus the power of the market opportunity, the mm-hmm. market opportunity trumps everything, right? Sure. And what makes Facebook such a juggernaut is that – the management has been fantastic, but the market is also fantastic. And what what is Facebook's market? Again, this is the critical piece of understanding Facebook. I've said it before. I'm happy to say it again until it really resonates, is that Facebook is the digitization of offline relationships. What makes Facebook powerful is the physical. And that's, you know, in a roundabout way, that's what makes some aspects of this presentation interesting because uh, Zuckerberg was talking about making the digital physical. But if you go back to what the very name Facebook is not original, what were what was at Harvard? There were Facebooks that were actual pieces of paper that had people's pictures and names, and they were distributed to all the houses. So if you met someone, you could go up and see what their name was. And what Facebook was was taking those physical pieces of paper with pictures and names and putting them on the internet. That's been the foundation of the product. It remains the foundation of the product. It is the, their moat. It is everything. It is the the underlying strength of Facebook is that. The insight around the, the fact that this was already existing human behavior, wanting to know about the people that were around you um, – and wanting to find out more about them, and uh, the and taking the scalable nature of uh, applying technology to it, and allowing people to do it on that on that much grander scale was like a fantastic insight. But was it really that fantastic? I mean, if you think about it, it's actually a very sort of. I mean, yes, this is the case with lots of great tech insights, and the reason it is is because it was very obvious in many respects. This already exists. There's already market need. Let's make it digital and get all and reap all the 
aspect, the positivity of that, of being able to update it and be able to check and be able to search and all these sorts of things. If you actually think about it, Twitter is a far more brilliant product than Facebook is. In that brilliance, though, that Twitter's challenges arise, not just because it needs better management and better marketing, but because almost by definition, the market is like Twitter is is unique and a miracle in and of itself because Twitter created something completely new. They created a social network based on interests. And it that's it that's an incredible accomplishment. It I would argue taking away you know everything else just if you look at just those two things twitter is more impressive than facebook because they created a network out of nothing whereas facebook took an existing network and put it online now yeah. the now the flip side of that is that is why facebook is also dramatically more powerful and valuable than twitter because it they didn't have to make it from nothing they could take what already existed and digitize it it's a really interesting perspective and one I hadn't I hadn't considered. You're absolutely right that Twitter created something from nothing and this notion of where you'd go to find out about things you're interested in is always been a big part of the reason why I've been such a big fan and it's like it's how we how we first met um and I've made a number of really good friends through it for that reason the brilliance I mean it, it becomes a question of defining brilliance like what is more brilliant I think there's an element of being able to pick these things as well and knowing I mean there are many there are many services digital services that reach from the uh the uh, taking things that were done offline and bringing them online but there is there is definitely an art to picking the right one whether you're picking transportation as opposed to the many other possible offline to online services whether it's retail again with Amazon or Facebook like picking the right one to do that is that is part of the brilliance but it's certainly none of those are novel and the 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 novelty factor certainly certainly plays into um I hadn't really considered Twitter through that lens before, and I appreciate that perspective. Well, and this is where I give Zuckerberg so much credit is it's so easy when you experience massive success. The natural inclination of most humans is to attribute all that success to their own brilliance. Mm. And what happens when you attribute all that success to your own brilliance is you start to think you're brilliant at everything. And you're brilliant at marketing, and you're brilliant at business, and you're brilliant at business development, and you're brilliant at A, B, C, D, E, F, G, whatever it might be. And so many businesses are led astray because the founder or the person who had the original idea ends up thinking they're good at everything and are unable and unwilling to build the sort of team that will actually make their product into a viable company. And and you you see this happen you know to folks all the time. And the ability to build an effective team is not just getting brilliant people, it's empowering brilliant people. And empowering brilliant people means letting go. It means admitting you can't do everything, not by virtue of time, but also by virtue of expertise. Mm. And this ability to embrace the idea of sort of comparative advantage with like you will be stronger as a whole when you find people who do something better than you do, that's gonna make you better. It, it's really hard for people to, particularly when it's it's their baby, you know, and everything's invested into it, to really do that effectively. And that's exactly what Zuckerberg has proven himself able to do again and again and again. I I would make I would make two points in response to that. Uh, uh, first, I think that is one of the characterizations of the difference between 
uh, Twitter and Facebook, which is where where one was able to foster an environment that it allowed for things to get done and to be pushed forward in such an incredible way. Whereas you look at the other, and it's it looks like the it hasn't evolved at all in it's, all it's these hu- years. It's humility versus ego. Yeah, like, totally. Facebook is the humble company, and Twitter could not let their egos get out of the way. Totally. And the second thing is just to double down on your point around how hard it is to to it because there are other elements other than humility and ego at play here oftentimes when these companies start they exist through the sheer will of their founders like they're they are resource constrained and it is not for the fact that the founders care so much and push so hard that the company is able to make it through to this point where it's able to go up that hockey stick growth, it is really hard to unlearn those lessons right at the beginning where if it's not for the fact that I cling on to everything and I push it over the line, if, if I don't do it, it doesn't get done. If, 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 and, and as you bring like the, the benefit of bringing in brilliant people is to let them do things that you could never dream of doing. And uh, so many founders, I, I would say of the companies that flounder, or the companies that don't reach their true potential, so many founders become guilty of this, of like still having that instinct to hold on or this belief that if I don't do it all, it's not going to be done to a standard well enough. You don't empower your great people and they, they don't they don't stick around at that point. Yep. That, it, you're, it's the opportunity cost that gets lost, right? Because when someone new comes in, they're going to do things not as well as you did. And they're going to do them and some of them they're going to do differently. Yes. A- and if you get so wrapped up in the first six months to 12 months, you're missing out on what that person could have done from 12 months to a year. Again, not, that's not to say you shouldn't like weed out bad performers early, Yes, of course. but in striking that balance and having the judgment to understand the difference is key. But, and this is, and this is why like one of the most powerful character traits that you see in, in all kinds of successful people, whether they're founders or whether they're, you know, whatever profession you want to pick is self-awareness is this ability to step outside of themselves, to look at themselves objectively, look at what they do, their skills, how they treat other people, all sorts of things, and to have some degree of sort of object- objectivity about that. Mm. And and if you can't do that, if, if everything is filtered, everything you see is filtered through your own eyes and not this sort of third-person eyes, judgment comes from that. To be able to divorce yourself and how you would have done it is is really, really difficult. And I would say something for me personally. I mean, I've given bits and pieces of my sort of biography on this podcast in particular and, and you know, being in Taiwan and then in graduate school, all that. And for me, I, I will say the six years I spent in Taiwan – being an English teacher and seemingly contributing nothing to the world, not seemingly truthfully, except for, you know, some little kindergartners or something like that. I was so self unaware <laughs> before that, you know, and I was such a punk and I was running around thinking I knew everything and telling everybody what to do. And it is impossible to be effective at anything. If you are like that, if you, if you tell them what to do and you have no empathy and appreciation for other folks. And that, again, that it's not just day-to-day interaction. It's like, I couldn't write for, I, I couldn't do, be an effective writer if that was the case. And 
for me, I, I was such a head case that it took like six years of being in the wilderness to at least get a, a hint of self-awareness. But it's that self-awareness and that lets you learn everything else you need to learn because you can't improve. How can you improve yourself if you can't look at yourself objectively and know what actually needs to be improved and whether you're making progress or not? It's it's funny, right? It's that that um, Steve Jobs commencement speech that the dots only makes make sense when you look at them in reverse. That it, it that that experience was critical for you to get to where you are right now. And I don't want to I don't want to take us down a rat hole too much, but I'm curious, like, what about that experience was it that made you that that like how how do you bring how does one develop self-awareness when they're lacking it? I'm curious if there was a moment where it happened or Well, if there if there was a if there, if it was so easy then it wouldn't it wouldn't be an issue, of right? Of course. For me it was being just kind of just another person in a city of a million people and not special and no one cared. No one cared that I had good grades or good test scores or whatever and no one had expectations. I was just I mean I was an English teacher and like and being able to come to the place where like that's okay. Like it's not on me to solve the world's problems and to figure everything out. And because at the end of the day, like I'm I'm on the subway and there's you know what five you know two thousand people on the subway and I'm going to walk on the streets and rub shoulders with all these sort of people and I'm going to make all sorts of mistakes because it's an unfamiliar culture and I'm going to do things wrong and I'm going to offend people and I'm going to screw things up or people are going to do something that I'm one hundred percent sure is wrong and actually I'm the one that's wrong because I don't understand the cultural context in which it's happening. And for me, it had to be a very sort of brutal sort of process mm. of letting go that I know everything and embracing that I don't know I don't know anything. Again, like I was such a difficult case that it took the sort of extreme sort of experience to get there. No one will ever know anything. The the greatest thing if you want to know a lot of things the number one greatest thing you can do to know a lot of things is to appreciate that you don't know anything. How can you even be open to learning something if you think you know it? It's impossible. And and the greatest victory when it comes to knowledge and learning is knowing that you know nothing. I'm going to um, rely on the font of uh, wisdom, Donald Rumsfeld, and all his unknown unknowns to bring us back after that. that was, one, of, was, one of our favorites, because it, it is it really is an all-time great quote. It, it is pretty extraordinary, yes. Um, that's I, So thank you for sharing that. It's not always easy to, to talk about those things, but let's, let's bring that back to the, to the Facebook and Twitter. This is what I've always deeply deeply appreciated about Zuckerberg is, I mean, certainly he's made plenty of mistakes in all in places he screwed up both at the original founding and all along, but he has demonstrated again and again, a, a certain degree of humility. And I'm not saying like meekness. I, I mean like humility and bringing on people and empowering them and trusting them who know stuff he doesn't know. Mm. And always looking to learn and always presuming he doesn't know something and someone can teach him something. And you hear stories about this, mm. you know, again and again. And then you see the actual decisions that Facebook makes, like going out and buying Instagram, going about and, and, and buying stuff and looking like a doofus in, in the tech press, like these last six months, like we're going to take stories and we're just going to slap it up there and it's going to work because we have the network and all of us are sitting here saying, man, you look terrible. You're such a bad company, stealing, bad, bad, bad. And guess what matters? What matters like, is scoreboard, right? We, yep. we talked about scoreboard. this. We talked about this a little bit ago. And the scoreboard now says that Instagram stories have 200 million 
users. And and last we know of Snapchat, they have 150. So it brings up an interesting point because the last time, one of the last times we talked about scoreboard was also in the context of copying. And I, so if I was to characterize what you wrote this week is that, um, uh, Facebook has basically copied Snapchat strategy and it was exactly the right business move, but it feels, it doesn't feel right. Like it feels like we're losing something. And what's interesting is in the context of one of the last times we had this conversation, we both had a very different perspective, which is Apple and Samsung. Um, Apple came out with, uh, Apple came out, well, Apple and Google even, like we'll, we'll go Android and iOS, like let's not make it necessarily about hardware though. That was where, that was where the patent fights were launched, like this notion of copying. And it seems that, uh, I mean, I completely agree that this feels different. Um, to those previous instances, but I naturally wasn't satisfied with uh, it just feels different, therefore that's okay. And I wanted to dig in with you around why this is different from what happened in in that previous instance. Well, honestly, I don't have a problem with the copying for the exact reasons that we stated before. Mm-hmm. I mean, at the end of the day, this is an idea, right? And ideas mm-hmm. can and will be copied. I mean, I, I deal with this all the time. Like, I hope that most of my stuff is original ideas and I see another article that feels, hmm, that seems awfully familiar. The truth is none of this is is actually original. How many ideas do I have that are just repackaging things that I've read elsewhere and the knowledge and stuff I've accumulated over time? Like, And, and it's in the repackaging that so many interesting insights can be gained. Mm. But regardless, that's you can't patent ideas and we would never, ever, ever want to live in a world where ideas could be patented. At the end of the day, stories is an idea. It's it's not Facebook didn't copy their code. It's implemented slightly differently. It's it's all but the same. But at the end of the day, and Facebook said this very honestly and to their credit, it's a great idea. So why wouldn't we have it? And why wouldn't they have it? Agreed. I mean, in general, this notion of and we are better for it. This idea, like it brings it and i think uh, i think this might be where we're heading but it brings competition to the market like you have you have one provider of an operating system or one provider of phones in a certain size or that look a certain way like when somebody does something well it is human nature to copy that like why would you go and do something less well than the thing that's being done well but there's something about this instance that feels different. I, well, I don't know, though, because, I, I, again, I honestly have no problem with Facebook taking stories. I don't think they did anything wrong. I, I, I really don't. And that Snapchat might not have – you know, Snapchat still has the idea of ephemerality and, and a sense of privacy and a safe space for people to chat with each other. And remember, I mean, mm. the core foundation of Snapchat is untouched by Facebook and will continue to be untouched by Facebook because, as we've talked about previously, Facebook's brand is orthogonal to that. The idea of being a Facebook, of putting up your public sort of presentation of who you are is mm. the exact opposite of what Snapchat is about. And that remains Snapchat's differentiation and Facebook can't touch that. And this gets into the differences. What does true differentiation mean? True differentiation can never be based on features. If your differentiation is predicated on features, you are doomed. You will always be doomed because someone is going to come along and copy the features, right? Snapchat's differentiation, and if they do build a viable business over the long run, it comes from the fact that the role Snapchat fills in its users' lives is fundamentally different than the one Facebook does. And Facebook, by virtue of 
what is entailed in what makes Facebook valuable can never go there. Yeah, no, I mean, again, I I do not disagree with any of what you've said. I guess if I step back, there's something about the fact that if you are in such a market position that you can see what other people are doing and just by virtue of the fact that you are in this market position, replicate it perfectly, roll it out and crush your competition. This this is different from what happened with Apple and Google. Apple and Google go head to head uh, and and there is more competition in the market. There are more choices. But if I am Snapchat and I see this happen and I am, it's like difficult to, for me to react just because of the size and the existing network that Facebook have has. Let's as a as a thought experiment. Let's say that Snapchat ends up failing. Like I have an idea for a social net. Like all the ideas for social networks that might exist can't be brought to bear because I'm not going to spend my time and invest in that area simply because I know that it's like there's this 10,000 pound behemoth sitting over here that's just going to see what I do, take my idea, roll it out, and there's no way that I can compete. And how many really, like it's one of, it's one of the themes that we've spoken about the last couple of weeks. How many, of, how many things are we are not going to come to market as a result of, of the position that they've managed to build? Right. And so in some respects, my piece this week was not a condemnation of Facebook. It was a lamentation of the reality of them being so dominant. Mm. And it's a very sort of fine point I'm trying to make in that, you know, the, the truth is Facebook taking you know, an interesting sort of platform approach where developers can build these effects and all this sort of stuff. And presuming it all works and it very well, very well may, like the Facebook ultimate product when it comes to the sort of the sort of AR experience we've talked about in the context of Snapchat is probably going to be better. Uh, you know, it's going to be a better product because Facebook is going to bring more and better resources to yeah. bear and they're going to right. apply it to lots of people and they're going to get the mm-hmm. platform effects and all that. The problem is that something that Facebook has taken been at great pains to emphasize this week for net, for obvious reasons is that they've been working on this tech for a long time for longer than the last six months or nine months or whatever. And that doesn't surprise me. The idea of vision technology, and that's one of the core areas of AI and all this sort of stuff. Of course, Facebook has been working for a long time. So what? But what was the role Snapchat played in this? The role Snapchat played is they showed Facebook how to bring that technology to market. Absent a company like Snapchat, we would have ended up with something like Google Glasses, where you're creating a bunch of technology and you don't know what it's to be used for and you create some stupid device that no one actually wants. And now you know now Google's actually there might be some sort of corporate applications and and supposedly it's doing better now the sort of new sort of version but why was it so bad at the beginning because there was no the productization of the technology was missing. They 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 did they did what we accused Apple of doing with the first launch of the the Apple Watch. They they failed to get deep into the why. They just amassed a whole series of cool technologies and threw it out into the world. And it's like, well, you guys figure it out. This is cool, right? Right. It, but I mean, relatively speaking, the watch was like miles a miles mm, better product than even the Google Glass, right? Yes. And you saw all these stories about Google's vision technology, about Facebook, sorry, vision technology from like two years ago. And it was, it was about really cool stuff about helping blind people see pictures and very admirable stuff that's fantastic. And I'm not meaning to diminish that in any sort of way. But going back and reading them today, it's very clear that the sort of app, this the way it's being applied now 
was not even a glimmer in anyone at Facebook's eye. It, it, what, what happened is Snapchat had the vision. And now Facebook says, aha, that's the vision. We'll take that, thank you very much. And they're going to bring it to market. That's going to be great. The problem is, what happens after that? There, and there are so many examples of so many companies. Microsoft is a, a classic example. Spent billions and billions of dollars on research. All this sort of technology. And none of it came to market. Because the what is the drive to bring things to market? It's actually understanding end users wanting to earn their business and building a product that they need and will use. And that and if you are rolling in money and there's no incentive to do it, it's so easy and natural. And we see this with Google and you see this with companies again and again to just build cool technology because it's cool technology and the technology never crosses the chasm. It never actually makes a difference in people's lives. And and you go back to the class so 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 many people came back to me like what about Bell Labs? Bell Labs the transistor, Unix, all this amazing stuff. The laser. Bell Labs was amazing. Know how much money AT&T made off all that? It made absolutely none. Absolutely none. Which, by extension, is another way of saying what impact did that technology have on real people's lives? None. Well, the reason no. the transistor... Well, back, follow me here. The transistor has yeah, okay. transformed the world. Here's two interesting facts about the transistor that you... One you know and one you don't know. The one you know is that the, the way transistor... The way the transistor came into the world is that William Shockley, one of the inventors, left Bell Labs, went to his university stopping grounds in the Bay Area, started a company. He was an awful manager, so eight of the traders ate. Eight of his employees left, started a new company called Fairchild Semiconductor that actually produced a semiconductor. Two of those employees left to found a company called Intel that actually – and one of them was named Gordon Moore of Moore's <laughs> Law that actually made the transistor a meaningful product in people's lives. Another of the trader state is a guy named Eugene Kleiner, a.k.a. Kleiner Perkins, who was one of the founding fathers of the VC industry. The founding father is Arthur Rock, who actually funded Fairchild Semiconductor and Intel. And what made the – why does this transistor matter? Why is it the most important invention of the 20th century? The reason it's the most important invention – is not just that it was invented. We glorify the invention. We talk about Bell Labs and how amazing it was. Just as critical was the entrepreneurial spirit of Shockley <laughs> and the terrible management, the entrepreneurial spirit of those of those eight folks that fled, and the massive competition in the entire VC-funded ecosystem that drove forward the development of this and everything on top of it to be the cornucopia of technology and impact on people's lives that it is today. That's just as important as the initial invention. You're not going to get any argument out of me around that. Like it is a, a, the number of times this kind of thing has happened. It's funny, as you were mentioning the transistor, my mind immediately went to Xerox Park and the graphical user interface and Steve Jobs coming in. I mean, that would have sat in a lab for who knows how long and Jobs came in, saw it, immediately saw the potential of it is like well thank you very much i'm gonna run with this and i think he ended up issuing some equity in apple to xerox as a result of that but ran with it it's like i i couldn't agree with you more that the technology in and of itself without the without the why and without that entrepreneurial drive is is it's it's nothing more than just a lab experiment that will have no impact on the world and you, you see this now with like Google and like self-driving cars, right? It's so obviously a business opportunity. Who's actually building a future transportation business? Not Google. 
I mean, maybe they will end up sweeping in at the last minute and taking the whole thing. It's possible. And we've had co- companies whose technology is so advanced that they can do that. But it sure seems likely that they're going to have spent years and billions of dollars developing this technology that someone else is actually going to productize and make money off of. I mean, I think if there's one thing that I hope people who've been listening to this for a long time have begun to pick up on and take away and think about applying in their own businesses, or if they're thinking about an entrepreneurial venture, or they're working inside of one of these organizations, it's that you think about the business model in conjunction with the technology. And that is that is the criticism of, of the Google thing. And yes, if you, if you nail the technology in the right environment, like what Google originally did, which is part of where this problem stems from. They were existing in this open world and they were able to just bring the best technology to bear. And that's that's the culture that got set. But not it doesn't always work out like that. And thinking through how the business model works in conjunction with bringing the technology to bear and the why inside of users' lives, like thinking about those things in conjunction is critical to success. So I wanted to tell you, though, the second fact about the transistor. Okay, yes. The second fact about the transistor is that it was, well, it was invented in somewhere between November and December uh, 1947. Six months later, in Europe, uh, two guys named Her- uh, Herbert Matare and Henrik Welker invented the exact same thing with zero knowledge of the transistor invented at Bell Labs. I didn't know that. No one knows it because whoever was first gets credit, right? But the the fact of the matter is that the transistor was coming into the world in the late 1940s, whether or not Bell, you know, Mama Bell, AT and T had a monopoly or not. And it's easy to point to that and say, well, yes, but okay, they didn't productize of it, but they, you know, it still came out. And you see this with all kinds of stuff. I mean, the classic example is calculus, right? It was calculus invented or discovered. Newton and, and Leibniz, like it's this raging debate, who invented calculus? Well, given that they were both independent and they both came up with that at about the same time, was it invented or was it discovered? I mean, this is sort of a philosophical debate about inventions in general. And mm. again, R&D is super important and being willing to invest in it, in it is, is super important. But being able to productize it is really important too and to spread it around. And I'm not down on R&D. I'm not down on companies who R&D, not by any means at all. But I think to to stop with the sort of supposition that a company having monopoly, this is sort of you know one of Peter Thiel's things from his book, is that, oh, companies having monopoly is a great thing because then they can invest in the future, blah, blah, blah. And it, the problem is this is a very sort of famous section of the book. It's pretty short. He completely conflates the drive for monopoly with from new companies with the benefit of there being old monopolies. And the drive for new monopolies, the drive of a new company to build a market and succeed is fantastic. It, it's great. It, it, it bestows all kinds of benefit on the world. I'm not remotely convinced that old companies spending billions and billions of dollars for stuff that never ultimately comes to market and at best is seen by a Steve Jobs who will actually bring it to market. Is that really the most efficient way to bring these things to the world? Color me skeptical. I I would tend to agree. All those examples too that are quoted end up facing, didn't they end up getting broken apart before whatever it was that the new thing that came along with like emerged as well? And I'm not saying that there's a direct causal relationship between those two those two uh, uh, those two things happening, but it's it's worth questioning as well. Like AT and T got broken up. Microsoft had 
I mean, it, 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 it had action taken against it by the DOJ. And one of those actions which allowed desktop competition to emerge and, and uh, it stopped them from embracing and extending uh, the internet using Internet Explorer. Like there are, there are elements here at work that allowed the next thing to emerge, right? Yeah, I mean, well, it, it, it's, it's, a, it's a subject of debate. Like did – would Microsoft have turned out any differently had there not been an antitrust investigation? I tend to think that the browser was going to emerge – like it, what's, what's ironic about the whole internet thing is that Microsoft was exactly right that the internet was a massive threat to their business. What Microsoft – presumed is that it was the runtime that mattered and the runtime being the browser and because mm. the runtime mattered on the desktop, right? You know, classic, not just classic Microsoft, but classic any sort of dominant company, they presume that what they're mm-hmm. good at matters. And so Microsoft fought all out to to kill Netscape and they won. And the, the, what's funny is the, the thing people forget is that Internet Explorer was actually better than Netscape from like version three on or so. But, and, and they, they won, they were better. And then and then, of course, it's stagnated. Now, there's some people – because what actually matters is what happened inside the browser. What actually mattered ultimately was Google and, and the ability to you know to navigate this massive wealth of information, this shift from, from scarcity to abundance and the way that dramatically mm. changed the way the, the flow of value. Because value mm. used to flow from supply through to demand and who could distribute that supply – is where the money was made. When that flipped and value was derived from from demand and who could direct that demand to the supply, Google was the company that was well-placed to to achieve that. And there's some people that say, oh, well, Microsoft would have cut off Google, but how? I mean, the way the internet works, that's a little more difficult than you might seem. But then again, Microsoft couldn't build in their own search in Internet Explorer. They couldn't make the defaults. There were certainly handcuffs Mm. put on them Anyhow, that was a long digression. There's a lot of debate about it. Other thing to remember about Microsoft is I mentioned Internet Explorer was better, but then they got to six and then they never – it stopped. I mean, what's kind of funny is arguably the greatest invention that Microsoft made after that point was as as in an attempt to lock in people to Internet Explorer, they created the uh, XML HTTP ActiveX control, which was adopted more broadly as XML HTTP request, which was basically allowed the development of web apps. Because you could asynchronously make changes on a web page and then send it to the server in the background and update it and all that sort of stuff. So they they actually, by attempting to deepen their lock-in, created the entire possibility of there being web apps that undid their their sort of app base, you know, network effect advantage, which is which is a you know certainly ironic in in, in its own way. What's the old saying? People often meet their fate on the road they take to avoid it. <laughs> yeah, ex- exactly. But the uh, anyhow, we are we are as you know. I could uh, digress on on Microsoft until until the sun goes down. <laughs> the, the broader the broader point is, it's not that Facebook did anything wrong here per se. I mean, it, certainly it was shameless, and it's it's kind of there's an interesting debate to be had about the value of shame in sort of policing behavior. And, you know, the, the fact that, you know, Zuckerberg's humility that we praised him for is mm. so uh, extreme, if you want to put it that way, that he will like, that's fine. They did it. We'll take it. Like, that's almost like it's almost like that. That's great for Facebook. And it's like bad for society. Uh, it's interesting. I mean, uh, uh, 
I again, I, in general, I would agree with everything you've said around and and the point that we made last time. Like copying is good. Like if you see something better, it is it is good that people come along and use what is better, and that becomes the new foundation on which new things are launched. I think the problem is not that that happens. The problem is the broader context, like you said, of Facebook's dominance such that by by just copying and rolling it out wholesale, they can completely eliminate competition. And this is an area which the world would benefit from having a lot of competition in. Yeah, and, and the, the trouble is that it's not really clear what there is what there is to be done about it. I mean, the tradition, uh, U.S. antitrust doctrine since about the 1980s or so, uh, late 70s or early 80s, I think 1982 was formalized under the Reagan administration, this idea of consumer welfare being the primary basis on mm. which antitrust decisions are made and the primary indicator of consumer welfare is price. Uh, mm. uh, you know, under this doctrine, the problem, as we've discussed on this podcast, this goes way back to the beginning of, of Exponent, is when things are free, price is no longer a indicator. And so what I was trying to do in kind of the second part of this article is use – take like wh- why is monopoly a bad thing and the idea of deadweight loss and what is loss and kind of take that graph and what happens if you change some of the labels on it and change what it's applied to. Um, by the way, I screwed up the graph. <laughs> I colored in like, – the producer surplus is too big basically. Anything under marginal cost should be colored in. Anyhow, uh, I, I will fix been it. been a while since you did that. Oh, I was so mad because I, I – Finished this article super late, and I left my office, went back to my house to sleep, and then I discovered it. And unfortunately, I didn't have my iPad with me. And then last night, I was going to fix it, and I brought my iPad home. Battery was dead, and the iPad Pro, whatever, you don't want to hear. I couldn't get it charged in time, so it's still there. I'm going to fix this weekend. Anyhow, the idea is to take, take that graph, Econ 101 sort of graph, what is the cost of monopoly, that deadweight loss that happens? And what happens when you start changing some of the labels to not just be about consumers, not just be about consumer surplus, not just be about price, because that is not a way to measure what's happening here, and apply mm-hmm. it to different parts of Facebook business to see if there is a cost being accrued. So the first example is this – Facebook is, is not just for consumers. It's not just for advertisers. It's also for content creators. And I found it really distressing that all these – you know publications backing out of instant articles because they say it wasn't monetizing well enough. I mean, Facebook disputes that. They put out some numbers yesterday saying that that's not the case, that, you know, and they may be right, you know, maybe traditional publications that aren't well suited to it, whatever. The point is, is that it's not clear that Facebook is optimizing its behavior for an optimal point where there's a win-win situation. It looks like they're optimizing their behavior so that Facebook garners the vast majority of the value, even if the overall value is then less. That actually fits fits the graph, if that makes sense. It it fits the graph. It fits the broader it fits the broader uh accusation of there being a lack of competition. Like it's so many I mean uh there, there was a recent Medium article where the, someone from the Chicago Tribune started talking about how they, they like, Facebook changes the algorithm. We feel it in terms of, like, we start to see our page views go down. Like, the extent to which media companies are now reliant on that company to drive traffic to their property, their pages, because it has so much attention. It is getting to the point where it has a monopoly on people's day-to-day attention. It's pretty remarkable. Well, you just think about it sort of intuitively. Like, do the whole point, and I've written about this multiple times. Do publications have any choice but be on Facebook? 
None. Oh, well, I mean, with very, I mean, yes. Sorry, do, do, but does any advertising-based publication have a choice but to be on Facebook? No, because like an advertising-based business model relies on as broad a reach as possible. Now, there are maybe a few very specific exceptions where they're very narrow niches and they can they can saturate that niche. But generally, advertising works by reaching a massive audience. And and if you want to do that, you go to where the audience is. And guess what? The audience is on Facebook. Well, if you want to reach a niche, you ought to be on Facebook too because that's how you identify the niches. Like Facebook's better that, at that than anyone else. And so it, it's mm. obvious that Facebook has all the power in this relationship. And is that a monopoly as far as impact on the consumer welfare? I mean, you have to, it, it's, it's a, dare I say, a sort of a double bank shot sort of to draw the connection. I think without question, it's there, right? Where you have, and there's lots of articles written about the corrosive effect this has on publisher behavior and the sort of articles we get and attention that's paid to different sorts of things. And we can see that, but it, it, it is, when it comes to a traditional sort of monopoly costing out the cost of monopoly, very difficult to sort of determine what that was. And so I was trying to kind of see if we could tease that out. If that And the instant articles and the lack of monetization for them mm. on Facebook's part, allegedly, is, I think, a, an interesting sort of example of how to get to that. Yes, I, I would agree. It's like a, it's a really good, it's a good way in of looking at it, though it is interesting that they've produced data that, that disputes it. But I, I would agree. That being said, I share your hypothesis and maybe there's a little bit of confirmation bias at work, which is I see the, I see the data and it suggests to me that I'm right. <laughs> The thing with this articles is I believe publishers should be doing it. And not only should they be doing it, they should not be selling their own ads in it. Like they should let Facebook sell the ads. Facebook is the best ad sales, you know, one of the best ad sales companies in the world, which we'll get to in just a moment. Like paying Facebook 30% to sell ads is, in my estimation, in the long run, a much better use of resources than paying your own sales team however much it costs to sell ads that you get to keep 100% of. But uh, yeah. <laughs> it assumes that they're going to split it fairly with you, and it's not immediately clear that that's what's happening. Right. We need more data. It's not, again, the, the companies that have complained have their own built up businesses already. So they've, all those costs are sort of fixed costs. And so maybe for a new publication that's starting from scratch, like they will actually pursue that and find it to be very successful. And I hope so, because I, I think it's in Facebook's interests to have a healthy publishing ecosystem, but you don't always do what's in your full interest if there's an easier path available because you have, you're have you in a dominant position. Right. Number two is advertising. This one is also, again, there's a very innocuous story to tell, which I think has a lot of truth to it, which is that Facebook's going to decrease ad load this summer because mm. they don't want to ruin their user experience. And that's exactly, I 100% believe that's why Facebook is doing it. But... It follows that if Facebook, what's going to be really interesting to watch is what happens to pricing after that happens. If Facebook restricts the increase in ad load and the pricing, price per ad, increases meaningfully, that certainly suggests that they have some sort of market power over some sort of advertising that is on their platform. And here's the thing. I can't imagine that wouldn't happen. Now, I mean, I, I buy the, the broader trend that you've written about, about brand advertising shifting away from the very blunt instrument of television onto more online properties as people's attention shifts there. If there is a flood of, if there is a flood of new advertising money all seeking out, um, 
ways of getting in online, the first place they are going to look are the Facebook properties. It's going to be Instagram, Facebook, so on. If they are making a case, if the largest destination for this brand advertising is making a point of restricting the the inventory that's available, I can't see how it won't raise prices. Now, the proof will be in the pudding. Like That's a number that will be widely available, so it'll be interesting to see how it plays out. But I can't imagine how that wouldn't be the case. Right. Well, if it's not the case, that's a huge bear case for for Facebook, right? Because it showed that their ads are undifferentiated relative to, to other folks, and the only thing that drives their bottom line is reach. And which again, they have the best ad unit on the internet. It's you know people. It takes up your whole screen. People, you know, visit their, those news feeds constantly. But you know, it would having a having the best inventory and a differentiated ad product is an even better place to be than just having the best inventory. If that makes sense. Yeah, I mean, it wouldn't just be a bear case. It would also be a it would be a, a shot against the argument that we're mounting here that it's kind of reaching a monopoly position in terms of places where you can do um, this kind of advertising online. Right, exactly. And so, th- th- again, th- th- all we have is the announcement that it's going to th- – the announcement is that revenue is going to go down. What's interesting is, one, it's not for sure that revenue go- will go down. I'm sure there- there's an aspect of talking down the street just because Facebook's not totally sure what will happen, but also just talking on the street whenever possible is uh, you know a great thing to can, can be useful mm. when your company is going up and to the right. But two, a monopolist doesn't care about revenue. A monopolist is about profit maximization, and actually, by definition, you reduce it if you the sort of basic econ one hundred one monopoly graph. You decrease your revenue such that you can maximize your profit. That's the entire point of anomalous behavior and why there's debate loss. So, so it's not news that Facebook is decreasing their revenue or announced a slowdown in revenue growth. I say they're not. De- no one's. If Facebook ever decreases, then we have big problems. Yeah, the, a slowdown yeah. in revenue growth is not news. That doesn't say that this analysis is wrong. And, you know, it'd be super interesting to see these numbers. I'm not. I'm not sure if it's going to be as clear as you say. If we're going to be able to tease this out, but it again. Not to say Facebook's doing anything wrong. They're not doing anything wrong. The interesting thing here is, and we've talked about this in the context of Google, which is the different approaches between the United States and the European Union to antitrust. And the US is focused on consumer and damaging the consumer. The EU's approach is focusing on making sure there's competition on the supply side inside of different industries. I actually think that there's a possibility that the European Union, it, it, like this, this position, if if it gets to this position, it could start to run afoul in terms of like this type of advertising um, from from uh, the EU side of the pond. But if you think about it, there's not really anything Facebook's done wrong there either. The EU cases is talking about you know Google leveraging search into sort of shopping or leveraging search into or leveraging Android into you know these various agreements and and various you know whatever they might be tying stuff together. Like Facebook is just connecting people and people go there because they want to see stuff and advertisers want to see people. And Facebook is going to sell the ads on an auction basis. It's not like they're setting a price or fixing a price or anything like that. The price is just going to rise because that's what it is. And, and the idea like what we're, the European Union is going to tell Facebook that you should make a shitty user experience by having more and more and more ads sell something but ads. I mean, no, that's preposterous. Yeah. Like they're, that's what is so it's kind of demoralizing about this is Facebook's not actually doing anything wrong. 
Yeah, it's interesting. Like on on every basis, whether it is um, if you were to make the argument of uh, reducing competition by just outright, let's just say it was outright copying of uh, Snapchat and reducing inventory on the basis of doing that. But again, you make the case, it's a great experience. Why wouldn't we do it? And again, with the the advertising, it's like, well, we don't want to put expose our users to more ads. Like we're gonna we're gonna limit the amount of ads. Like it's great for the customer experience. That's why we're doing it. You're right. It's interesting. It's um on uh, it's interesting how the 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 in in the instances of how users opt into these things on the basis of experience it almost provides a defense against what could otherwise be perceived as monopolistic behavior in this this new world right because remember the, the what microsoft was nailed on with with the browser was including the browser for free with windows so they were leveraging the windows monopoly to basically ensure a distribution and price advantage relative mm. to Netscape, where Netscape originally had to pay for it. And even once they made it free, you still had to actively go and seek it out and download it. So it was that fundamental disadvantage. Microsoft was leveraging one monopoly to achieve dominance in, in, a, in a market next door. Now, what's funny looking back is our browsers and operating systems really different. That was Microsoft's argument in the case. And actually, it was probably proven not to be correct. But anyhow, in this case, Facebook is adding a feature, an idea to their product. There's no price manipulation. There's no there's no tying. They're not tying a separate product. Is it really to say that adding a filter effect to a camera that was already in Facebook's app? Are you arguing that's a completely separate product? I mean, again, you could put an put up an argument that a browser is not a separate product from an operating system. You can't even don't bring this a filter is a different product than a social network. Yeah. yeah, yeah, no, 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 no. I'm with you, and uh, like the interesting thing becomes like, and this is, I think, this was the point of your argument is like, what do you do about it? And it's, I, I think that it's, it's a really interesting question, it, and I was, I was struggling with an answer to it, and I think if I was to trace back to. The one thing, and it wasn't even clear that this was running afoul of any rules back when it happened. But if I was to trace back to one thing where perhaps given what I know now or what has the way things have played out, it's been the acquisition of Instagram. Like if Instagram was an independent company from Facebook right now, the ability to just take what uh, Snapchat did and roll that into stories as it now exists in Instagram I think that the, res- the 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 dynamics of competition, if that were an independent entity between the three players, it would be a much healthier ecosystem in terms of like we wouldn't be talking about these effects happening the way they are. Yep, and th- th- that was why my first sort of recommendation, you know, what I wrote about this topic a couple months ago is no social network should be allowed to acquire another one. And if we could go back in time, that is without question the 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 one sort of move that would be undone and, and you know, the WhatsApp as well. Unfortunately, we're where we are now and it's not really clear there is a means or measure to break it up. You know what I mean? And and so we'll see. We'll see what will happen next. I mean, the there is a doctrine in antitrust law called the essential facilities doctrine, which is, uh, you know, if there's a a bottleneck to a market that can deny competitors entry to the market. In this case, it would be kind of the network itself. Can you Mm. build a competitive social network if you don't have access to Facebook's network? And that was sort of the basis of one of my other suggestions is is social, your social identity and network ought to be portable. 
as we discussed in the podcast, I didn't discuss an article, I, uh, but is there's privacy implications with that? Like, yeah. should that be widely available? And how we get from here to there is really unclear and com- you know complex, and how that might work. And so is it was a unsatisfying article in a way. I mean, the last point I made is, and this is probably a, str- a little bit of a stretch, but the idea was applying that sort of model to kind of innovation itself, where the market, if you have to create your innovation, drives you to a certain place and a certain amount of consumer benefit. But if you can just take innovation, it's like choosing profit maximization over competition. And that reduces the amount of consumer benefit in the long run. That was maybe pushing this sort of graph concept a little bit far, but it was trying to quantify in some or at least theoretically this idea of when you lose competition, you can just take stuff the consumers do do suffer in the long run. There's less consumer surplus generated. And while it will be okay in this instance because Snapchat already showed the way, what about the next instance and the, and the instance yeah. after that? And I don't have good solutions. And I hate writing articles where I don't have great solutions. But unfortunately, it's it certainly seems to be something that is, we have to be concerned about. I mean, it's... Uh... It's funny if if the solution that uh, the the optimal solution that probably wasn't a, a possibility, um, and and I like your solution about like being much more careful about market power in the in the cases of social networks acquiring each other. But if you think about the solution being that Facebook shouldn't have acquired Instagram, maybe there is a solution, and it's not wouldn't be the first time that the U.S. government has proposed breaking up entities before. Where if this if and again, it's not clear that Facebook are breaking any antitrust laws, but one potential remedy should should uh, it be decided that they are is like that those that that those companies are forcibly separated. Right, but I mean that's the problem is there's no really legal means to get there or legal justification, frankly, to get there. Like again, Facebook hasn't really done anything wrong. They just have a really great monopoly. Like it's a natural monopoly. There's really not anything you can. You can do about it. And it. Like realistically, it will take a a congressional action, like congressional Congress mm. passing a new antitrust law. We haven't passed one in a hundred years, and people really. There was a debate about this on Twitter a couple of days ago about this specific point, and people are like, "Oh, Congress will never pass anything. They haven't done anything for ages," and that's true. But what have we talked about a lot recently? The sort of the changes that are happening in the realignment and there's stuff bubbling, right? And, you know, there's a phrase that Bill Gates says about technology is we overestimate the change in two years and underestimate the change in 10 years. I think that's just about humans in general. I, I mean, when stuff changes, it's like, what's the name of our podcast? Exponent, right? What's the idea mm. of an exponential curve? For a long, 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 long time, that exponential curve, it's, it feels like you're not going up at all. Yeah, and then suddenly you cross that point, and it's you're going straight up, and I, that that happens with anything with humans and mass behavior, and certainly the idea there'd be some sort of like populist revolt against big corporations and and against tech specifically. I mean, we've talked about this again yeah. and again, and these are some of the sort of concrete ways that this might play out if if that happens. I mean, it's certainly the case, and I mean, it, it reaches back to one of the various early, the very earliest episodes. Like, it's certainly the case that the nature of competition in this 
this new era of tech feels very different to the last. And we've talked about some of the causes that that it's a it's rather than an an era where uh, an uh, where there was a restriction, there was scarcity. We're in we're in an an era of abundance. And like as this plays out, and as you see more and more of these companies become absolutely dominant to the point where there is no competition and there's no prospect of competition, I think the possibility that you will see people start to react, I I think that possibility goes up pretty dramatically. Um, And the extent to which these companies are increasingly finding themselves in the crosshairs for various actions that they're taking also increases that possibility. They have so much power. They're being watched so closely. They only have to piss off a few, quite a, like, I mean, one of these moves piss off a lot of people and all of a sudden you have a, you have a quick decision to like, okay, we're going to do something about this. Yeah. So it'll be very interesting to see, see what plays out over the next, you know, the, the next few years. I, I, it's one of those things, you know, what's the phrase? It's always darkest before the sunrise, which I'm not sure is mm, actually I, true, but it's a, it's a good saying. Darkest before dawn. <laughs> yeah, that's what it is. I think there's, when it comes to sort of fundamental realignments, and you look back through history, you see this again and again. It's the moment before the most upheaval that things seem the most ossified, right? Mm. And then the reason there's so much upheaval is because it takes such a tremendous amount of energy to undo that ossification to break it apart and that expresses itself in all kinds of ways some productive some not so productive but certainly the political avenue is one of those ways it can be expressed and like i said we it sort of feels like we already saw some of that or are seeing some of that not just in the u.s but uh, you know sort of across the developed world and maybe that will be enough maybe trump is going to be the sort of earthquake that relieves pressure or maybe Mm -hmm. there's more to come it's gonna be very interesting interesting to watch yeah, and I mean, on the other hand, that what you just said exactly holds true for companies. Like you look at these companies that have managed to establish themselves in dominant positions only to be disrupted and they look like they're at the peak of their, their game or right before they're not. And who knows how this plays out? Who knows if somebody comes out of left field with something that that Facebook can't react to? And actually, in your daily update, one of the things that I found most interesting was the discussion of where they're going with uh, augmented reality and virtual reality, but the tension they face in trying to get that out to everybody uh, and uh, like map the hard the hardware and the software and become a platform, but they. They are an advertising company, and the business model is in tension with the 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 uh, delivery mechanism in that world. Yes, we should talk about it. Uh, we are running a little late, so I'm going to I'm going to draw the line at that tease. But I think it, it's Facebook's announcements also deserve to be talked about on their own merits, like outside of this mm. sort of discussion. And th- I did try to get into that in the daily update. And there's all it's it, it's a whole another fascinating sort of sort of discussion to be sure. The only consternation I have is even when Microsoft's at the peak of its powers, Microsoft itself could see the avenue of disruption, which was the internet. That's why they went nuts on the browser, right? And everyone knew that phones in the long run were going to be something meaningful. And like, what is going to replace the social network in it being the sort of being the we're social people like and that's where we're going to go for information that's a little harder like there's nothing even remotely on the horizon that seems ready to replace that right but that's a that's another discussion for another day unless you have like a five second answer right now no worries all good um all good our thanks to mailchimp for sponsoring this week's episode of exponent and i will talk to you next week
Sounds good, mate. Have a good one. All right, bye-bye.